And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Genesis 5.24 Here we have set forth in the form of a brief summary the new life of the believer, to walk with God. Previously, Enoch had walked according to the course of this world. Ephesians 2 verse 2 had gone his own way. Isaiah 53 6 of self-pleasing and unconcerned about the future had thought only of the present. But now he had been reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 20 For can two walk together except they be agreed? Amos 3 verse 3 The term walk signifies a voluntary act, a steady advance, a progress in spiritual things. To walk with God imports a life surrendered to God, a life controlled by God, a life lived for God. It is to that our present verse has reference. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him, for before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. It should be obvious to any spirit-taught heart that we need to look beneath the surface here if we are to discover the spiritual principle of the verse and seek grace to apply it to ourselves. As a mere historical statement, it is doubtless a very interesting one, yet as such, It imparts no strength to my needy soul. The bare fact that a man who walked this earth thousands of years ago escaped death may astonish, but it supplies no practical help. What we wish to press upon the reader is the need for asking each portion of Scripture he reads the question, What is there here? What practical lesson to help me while I am left on earth? Nor is this always discovered in a moment. Prayer, patience, meditation are required. As we endeavor to study our verse with the object of ascertaining its practical and meaning message for us today, the first thing the thoughtful ponderer will notice is the repetition of the word translated. This occurring no less than three times in one verse is evidently the key word. According to its etymology, translated signifies to carry across, to bear up, to remove, to change from one place to another. This at once brings to mind, if the word of Christ be dwelling in us richly, that verse, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Colossians 1 verse 13 This refers to the grand fact of the Christian's present standing and state before God. He has passed from death unto life. John 5.24 Now, it is the Christian's privilege and duty to live in the power of this fact and have it made good in his actual case and experience. And this will be so, just in proportion, as he is enabled to live and walk by faith. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. 
The word see here has the force of taste or experience. Enoch was not to be overcome by death, but let us not limit our thoughts unto physical death. Just as Enoch's translation from earth to heaven has a deeper meaning than the natural, so that he should not see death signifies more than an escape from the grave. Death is the wages of sin, the curse of the broken law. We are living in a world which is under God's righteous curse, and death is plainly stamped across everything in it. But when faith is in exercise, the soul is lifted above the scene, and its favored possessor is enabled to walk in newness of life. As we saw when pondering the opening verse, it is the nature of faith to bring near things future and to obtain proof and enjoyment of what is invisible to the natural sight. Just so far as we walk by faith, is the heart translated, raised above this poor world, and then it is we experience the power of His, Christ's, resurrection. Philippians 3 verse 10 Let us now link verses 4 and 5 together observing their doctrinal force. When a sinner, by surrender to God and faith in the sacrifice of Christ, is pronounced righteous by the judge of all, he is made an heir of eternal life, and sin and death can no more have dominion over him, that is, no longer have any legal claim upon him. It is this which is illustrated here. The very next saint who is mentioned after Abel was taken to heaven without dying, thereby demonstrating that the power of death over the Christian has been annulled. First a sinner saved through the blood of the Lamb, Abel, then a saved sinner removed from earth to heaven, and nothing between. How inexpressibly blessed! Words fail us, and we can but Bow in silent wonderment and worship. How great is God's salvation! Now that which is a fact of Christian doctrine needs to become a fact of Christian experience. We need to enjoy the good, the power, the blessedness of it in our souls day by day. And this can only be as a supernatural faith is an exercise. A bare knowledge of doctrine is practically worthless unless the heart earnestly seeks from God a practical outworking of it. It is one thing to believe that I have judicially passed from death unto life. It is quite another to live practically in the realm of life. But that is exactly what a life of faith is. It is a being lifted above the things which are seen and a being occupied with those things which are unseen. It is for the affections to be no longer set on things on the earth, but to have them fixed on things in heaven. Perhaps the reader is inclined to say, The ideal you set before us is indeed beautiful, but it is impossible for flesh and blood to attain unto it. Quite true, dear friend. We fully grant it. Of himself, 
The Christian can no more live practically upon resurrection ground than Enoch could transport himself to heaven. But observe carefully the very next words in our wonderful text, because God had translated him. Again, we beg you not to carnalize these words and see in them only a reference to his bodily removal to heaven, or to see in them nothing more than a type and pledge of the rapture, the fulfillment of 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. That is the prophetical significance. But there is a spiritual meaning and practical application also. And this is what we so much desire to make clear unto each spiritual reader. Enoch's translation to heaven was a miracle, and that which is spiritually symbolized is a supernatural experience. The whole Christian life, from start to finish, is a supernatural thing. The new birth is a miracle of grace, for one who is dead in trespasses and sins can no more regenerate himself than he can create a world. A spiritual repentance and spiritual faith are imparted by the operations of God. Colossians 2 verse 12, For a fallen creature can no more originate them than he could give himself being. To have the heart divorced from the world, to be brought to hate the things we once loved and to now love the things we once hated is the alone fruitage of the almighty work of the Holy Spirit. And for the heart to function in the realm of resurrection life while its possessor is left in a scene of death can only be made possible and become actual as the supernatural grace of God sustains and calls into exercise a supernatural faith. Only God can daily wean our hearts from the things of this world of death and bring us into real communion with the Prince of Life. A word of caution here. Let us be on our guard against fatalistically folding our arms and saying, God has not ordained that I should live the translated life. True, God is sovereign and distributes His favors as He pleases. True, He grants more grace to some of His own people than to others of them. Yet it is also written that ye have not because ye ask not. James 4 verse 2 Moreover, observe well the next words in our text. Before his translation, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. Ah, does not that explain why our faith is so feeble, and why the things of earth forge such heavy change about our hearts? God is not likely to strengthen and increase our faith while we are so largely indifferent to his pleasure. There must first be the daily, diligent, prayerful striving to please Him in all things. This is absolutely essential if we are to enter into the experience of the translated life. Let us seek to anticipate a possible objection. Some may be saying the translated life is difficult these days. Then let us remind you of the times in which Enoch lived 
It was just before the flood, and probably conditions then were far worse than they are now. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Jude 14 and 15 It must be remembered that those words had an historical force as well as a prophetic rule. Thus, a life of pleasing God, of walking with Him, of the heart being lifted above the world, was no easier then than now. Yet divine grace made this actual in Enoch, and that grace is as potent today as it was then. Oftentimes it is helpful to reverse the clauses of a verse so as to perceive more clearly their relation. In order to illustrate this, and because we are so anxious for the reader to lay hold of the vitally important teaching of Hebrews 11.5, we will treat it accordingly. Before his translation, he had this testimony, that he pleased God. Do I? Do you? That is a most timely inquiry. If we are not pleasing God, then the more knowledge we have of His truth, the worse for us. That servant which knew his Lord's will, and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. Luke 12, verse 47. God will not be mocked. Fair words and reverent postures cannot deceive Him. It is not how much light do I have, but how far am I in complete subjection to the Lord. God had translated Him. Of course He did. God always honors those who honor Him. But let us remember that same verse adds, And they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. For Samuel 2, verse 3. God is too holy to encourage self-pleasing and put a premium upon self-indulgence. While we gratify the flesh, the blessing of the Spirit will be withheld. While our hearts are so much occupied with the concerns of earth, He will not make the things of heaven real and efficacious to us. O oh, my reader, if God be not working mightily in your life and mine, showing himself strong on our behalf, Second Chronicles 16.9, then something is seriously wrong with us. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. Remember what was before us in the preceding chapter, Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10, verse 17, Faith always presupposes a divine revelation. Faith must have a foundation to rest upon, and that foundation must be the word of him that cannot lie. God had spoken, and Enoch believed. But what a testing of faith! God declared that Enoch should be removed from earth to heaven. 
without passing through the portals of the grave. One, two, three hundred years passed, but Enoch believed God, and before the fourth century had completed, his promise was fulfilled. That he should not see death was the reward of his pleasing God, and he does not change where there is a genuine pleasing of him, a real walking with him, he elevates the heart above this scene into the realm of life, light and liberty. Here passing on to the next verse, let us enumerate other points of interest and value contained in this one, though we cannot do more than barely mention them. One, God is not tied to the order of nature. Genesis 3, verse 19, was set aside in the cases of Enoch and Elijah. 2. God puts great reward, providential differences, between those equally accepted by him. He did so between Abel and Enoch. 3. To exhibit the world's enmity, God suffered Abel to be martyred, to comfort his people, God preserved Enoch. 4. What God did for Enoch, He can and will yet do for a whole generation of His saints. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. 5. There is a future life for believers. The removal of Enoch to heaven plainly intimated this. 6. The body is partaker with the soul in life eternal. The corporeal translation of Enoch showed this. 7. The godliest do not always live the longest. All mentioned in Genesis 5 stayed on earth a much greater time than did Enoch. 8. They who live with God hereafter must learn to please God ere they depart hence. 9. They who walk with God please Him. 10. They who please God shall not lack testimony thereof. But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Verse 6 The Apostle had just spoken of Enoch's translation as a consequent of his pleasing God, and now from the fact of his pleasing God proves his faith. The adversative particle, but, is used to introduce a syllogism. The argument is framed thus. God himself had translated Enoch, who before his translation had pleased him, as his translation evidenced, but without faith it is impossible to please God. Therefore Enoch was, by faith, translated. Thus this declaration in verse 6 has special reference to the last clause in the verse preceding. The argument is drawn from the impossibility of the contrary, as it is impossible to please God without faith. And as Enoch received testimony that he did please God, then he must have had faith, a justifying and sanctifying faith. While there is an intimate relation between our present verse and the one immediately preceding, 
and while, as we shall yet see, the Lord willing, that it is closely connected with the case of Noah in verse 7. Yet it also makes its own particular contribution onto the theme which the Apostle is here developing, supplying both a solemn warning and a blessed encouragement. The Holy Spirit still had before him the special need of the wavering Hebrews, and would press upon them the fact that the great thing God required was not attendance on outward ordinances, but the diligent seeking unto him by a wholehearted trust. Where faith was missing, nothing could meet with his approval. But where faith really existed and was exercised, it would be richly rewarded. This principle is unchanging, so that the central message of our verse speaks loudly to us today, and should search the heart of each one of us. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. Most solemnly do these words attest the total depravity of man. So corrupt is the fallen creature, both in soul and body, in every power and part thereof, and so polluted is everything that issues from him, that he cannot of and by himself do anything that is acceptable to the Holy One. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God, Romans 8, verse 8. They that are in the flesh means they that are still in their natural or unregenerate state. A better fountain cannot send forth sweet waters, but faith looks out of self to Christ, applies unto His righteousness, pleads His worth and worthiness, and does all things Godward in the name and through the mediation of the Lord Jesus. Thus, by faith, we may please God. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Yet in all ages, there have been many who attempted to please God without faith. Cain began it, but failed woefully. All in their divine worship profess a desire to please God and hope that they do so. Why otherwise? should they make the attempt. But as the Apostle declares in another place, many seek unto God, but not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. Romans 9 verse 32 But where faith be lacking, let men desire, design, and do what they will. They can never attain unto divine acceptance. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for unto righteousness. Romans 4 verse 5 Whatever be the necessity of other graces, faith is that which alone obtains acceptance with God. In order to please God, four things must concur, all of which are accomplished by faith. First, the person of him that pleaseth God must be accepted of him. Genesis 4 verse 4. Second, the thing done that pleaseth God must be in accord with his will. Hebrews 13:21. Third, the manner of doing it must be pleasing to God. It must be performed in humility. 
1 Corinthians 15.10 In sincerity, Isaiah 38.3 In cheerfulness, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 12, 9, verse 7. Fourth, the end in view must be God's glory. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Now faith is the only means whereby these four requirements are met. By faith in Christ, the person is accepted of God. Faith makes us submit ourselves to God's will. Faith causes us to examine the manner of what we do Godwards. Faith aims at God's glory. Of Abraham it is recorded that he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Romans 4 verse 20 How essential it is then that each of us examine himself diligently and make sure that he has faith. It is by faith the convicted and Repentant sinner is saved. Acts 16.31 It is by faith that Christ dwells in the heart. Ephesians 3.17 It is by faith that we live. Galatians 2.20 It is by faith that we stand. Romans 11.20 2 Corinthians 1.24 It is by faith we walk. 2 Corinthians 5.7 It is by faith the devil is successfully resisted. 1 Peter 5 verses 8 and 9 It is by faith we are experimentally sanctified. Acts 26.18 It is by faith we have access to God. Ephesians 3.12 Hebrews 10.22 It is by faith that we fight the good fight. 1 Timothy 6.12 It is by faith that the world is overcome. 1 John 5.4 Reader, are you certain that you have the faith of God's elect? Titus 1.1 If not, it is high time you made sure, for without faith it is impossible to please God. Chapter 4 the faith of Noah. Hebrews 11, verses 6 and 7. The verses which are now to engage our attention are by no means free of difficulty, especially unto those who have sat under a ministry which has failed to preserve the balance between divine grace and divine righteousness. Where the free favor of God has been strongly emphasized and his claims largely ignored, where privileges have been stressed and duties almost neglected, it is far from easy to view many scriptures in their true perspective. When those who have heard little more than the decrying of creature abilities and the denunciation of creature merits are asked to honestly and seriously face the terms of Hebrews 11, 6 and 7, they are quite unable to fit them into their system of theology. Where such be the case, it is proof positive that something is wrong with our theology. Often those who are least cramped by sectarian bias find that the truth of God is too large, too many-sided, 
to be squeezed into human definitions and creeds. Others of our readers are probably wondering what it is we have reference to here when we say that our present portion of Hebrews 11 is by no means free of difficulty. Then let us raise a few questions upon these verses. If the exercise of faith be pleasing to God, does this signify that it is a thing meritorious? How is this concept to be avoided in the light of the statement that God is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him? How does a reward consist with pure grace? And what is the doctrinal force of the next verse? Does the case of Noah teach salvation by works? If he had not gone to so much expense and labor in building the ark, would he and his house have escaped the flood? Was his becoming heir of righteousness something that he earned by his obedient toil? How can this conclusion be fairly avoided? We shall endeavor to keep these questions before us in the course of our exposition. But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Verse 6 There is a threefold coming to God, an initial, a continuous, and a final. The first takes place at conversion. The second is repeated throughout the Christian's life. The third occurs at death or the second coming of Christ. To come to God signifies to seek and have fellowship with Him. It denotes a desire to enter into His favor and become a partaker of His blessings in this life and of His salvation in the life to come. It is the heart's approach unto Him in and through Christ. John 14, verse 6, Hebrews 7, 25. But before there is a conscious access to Him, God has to be diligently sought. None come to God, none truly seek Him, until they are made conscious of their lost condition. The Spirit must first work in the soul a realization that sin has alienated us from the life of God. Ephesians 4 verse 18 We have to be made to feel that we are away from God, out of His favor, under His righteous condemnation before we shall really do as the prodigal did and say, I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Luke 15, verse 18. The same principle holds good in connection with the repeated coming of the Christian. First Peter 2, verse 4. It is a sense of need which causes us to seek Him who is the giver of every good and every perfect gift. There is also a maintained communion with God in the performance of holy duties. In all the exercises of godliness, we renew our access to God in Christ. In reading of or hearing His Word, we come to Him as teacher. In prayer, 
we come to him as benefactor. But to seek God aright, he has to be sought in faith, for without faith it is impossible to please him. Therefore, he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. There has to be first a firm persuasion of his being, and second of his bounty. To believe that he is means much more than assenting to the fact of a first cause, or to allow that there is a supreme being. It means to believe in the character of God as he has revealed himself in his works, in his word, and in Christ. He must be conceived of a right, or otherwise we are only pursuing a phantom of our own imagination. Thus to believe that God is, is to exercise faith upon him as such a being as his word declares him to be, supreme sovereign, ineffably holy, almighty, inflexibly just, yet abounding in mercy and grace toward poor sinners through Christ. Not only is the heart to go out unto God as his being and character is revealed in Scripture, but particularly faith is to lay hold of his graciousness, that he is a rewarder, and so forth. The acting of faith toward God as a rewarder is the heart's apprehension and anticipation of the fact that he is ready and willing to conduct himself to needy sinners in a way of bounty, that he will act in all things toward them in a manner suitable unto the proposal of which he makes of himself through the gospel. It was the realization of this, in addition to his felt need, which stirred the prodigal to act, just as it would be useless to pray unless there were an hope that God hears and that he will answer prayer. So no sinner will really seek unto God until there is born in his heart an expectation of mercy from him, that he will receive him graciously. This is a laying hold of his promise. In Scripture, privileges are propounded with their necessary limitations, and we destroy the whole system of truth if we separate the recompense from the duty. There is something to be done on our part. God is a rewarder, but of whom? Of those who diligently seek Him. The wicked shall be turned into hell, all the nations that forget God. Psalm 9, verse 17, not only deny, but forget him, as they cast God out of their thoughts and affections, so he will cast them out of his presence. What is meant by diligently seek him? To seek God is to forsake, deny, go out of self, and take him alone for our ruler and satisfying portion. To seek him diligently, is to seek him early, Proverbs 8.17, wholeheartedly, Psalm 118.10, earnestly, Psalm 27.4, unweariedly, Luke 11.8.
How does a thirsty man seek water? The promise is, And ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. Jeremiah 29.13 And compare Second Chronicles 15, verse 15. And how does God reward the diligent seeker? By offering himself graciously to be found of them who penitently, earnestly, trustfully approach him through the appointed mediator. By granting them access into his favor, this he did not unto Cain who sought him in a wrong manner. By actually bestowing his favor upon them as he did upon the prodigal, by forgiving their sins and blotting out their iniquities, Isaiah 55, 7. By writing His laws in their hearts, so that they now desire and determine to forsake all idols and serve Him only. By giving them assurance of their acceptance in the Beloved and granting them sweet foretastes of the rest and bliss which awaits them on high. By ministering to their every need, both spiritual and temporal. Finally, by taking them to heaven, where they shall spend eternity in the unclouded enjoyment of the wondrous riches of His grace. But does this word rewarder have a legalistic ring to it? Not if it be understood rightly. Does it signify that our diligent seeking is the meritorious performance which is entitled to recognition? Of course it does not. What then is meant? First, let us quote from the helpful comments of John Owen. That which these words of the Apostle hath respect to, and which is the ground of the faith here required, is contained in the revelation that God made of Himself unto Abraham. Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Genesis 15, verse 1. God is so a rewarder unto them that seek Him, as that He is Himself their reward, which eternally excludes all thoughts of merit in them that are so rewarded. Who can merit God to be His reward? Rewarding in God, especially where He Himself is the reward, is an act of infinite grace and bounty. And this gives us full direction unto the object of faith here intended, namely, God in Christ, as revealed in the promise of Him, giving Himself unto believers as a reward to be their God, in a way of infinite goodness and bounty. The proposal hereof is that alone which gives encouragement to come unto him, which the Apostle designs to declare. Unquote. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Romans 4 verse 4. Is not the implication clear that grace itself also rewards? Grace and reward are no more inconsistent than the high sovereignty of God and the real responsibility of man, or between the fact that Christ is and was both servant 
Isaiah 42, 1, and Lord. John 13, verse 13. The language of Colossians 3.24 makes this clear as a sunbeam, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. The inheritance is heaven itself, salvation in its consummation. But is not salvation a free gift? Yes, indeed. Nevertheless, it has to be bought by its recipient. Isaiah 55.1 Yet without money and without price. Salvation is both a gift and a reward. While it is true that heaven cannot be earned by the sinner, it is equally true that heaven is not for idlers and loiters. God has to be diligently sought. To enter the straight gate, the soul has to agonize. Luke 13.24 We are called upon to labor for that meat which endureth unto eternal life. John 6.27 And to enter into the heavenly rest. Hebrews 4.11 Such efforts God rewards, not because they are meritorious, but because He deems it meat to recognize and recompense them. There are those who teach that in serving God we ought to have no respect unto the recompense of the reward. Hebrews 11.26 But this verse refutes them, for the Apostle explicitly declares that this forms a necessary part of that truth which is to be believed in order to obey our pleasing God. Heaven or completed salvation, is spoken of as a reward to intimate the character of those to whom it is given, namely, the diligent laborer. Second, because it is not bestowed until our work is completed, Second Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8. Third, to intimate the sureness of it. We may as confidently expect it as does the laborer who has been hired by an honest master. James 1, verse 12. This reward is principally in the next life. Hebrews 11, verse 16, and 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. It is then that all true godliness shall be richly recompensed. Mark 10, verses 29 and 30. It only remains for us now to add that the ground on which God bestows the reward is the infinite merits of Christ, and out of respect unto His own promise. That which He rewards is the work of His own Spirit within us, so that we have no ground for boasting. By faith, Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. Verse 7. The Apostle now presents a concrete example which illustrates what he had said in verse 6, God's dealings with Noah and the world in his time were plainly a sample and pledge of his dealing with the world in all ages particularly so when its history is finally wound up 
Inasmuch as God is the rewarder of those who diligently seek Him, it necessarily follows that He is also the revenger of all who despise Him. In the destruction of the old world, God showed His displeasure against sin. Job 22 verses 15 and 16 In the preservation of Noah, He made manifest the privileges of His own people. 2 Peter 2 verse 9 That the whole was a pledge and type is clear from 2 Peter 3 verses 6 and 7. In the verse which is now before us, three things claim attention. First, Noah's faith and its ground, namely, the warning he had received from God. Second, the effects of his faith, namely, internally, the impulse of fear. Externally, his obedience in making the ark under God's orders. Third, the consequence of his faith, namely, the saving of his house, the condemning of the world, his becoming heir of the righteousness which is by faith. But ere taking up these points, let us face and endeavor to remove a difficulty which some feel this verse raises. Let us put it this way. Was Noah saved by his own works? We believe the answer is both yes and no. We beg the reader to exercise patience and prayerfully ponder what follows, and not cry out rank heresy and refuse to read further. If Noah had not prepared an ark in obedience to God's command. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. 
And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.